Hi, everybody. Come on in. Still seats up here in the front. Pat, lovely to see you all tonight. Thank you for coming out in the rain. I'm very impressed with you and deeply grateful to you. My debut, it wasn't my debut exactly, but many years ago I gave a concert in uh, Los Angeles be long before I was the music director here, and it rained. And we had a very small audience. And my friend who took me out to dinner as a consolation prize said, well, you have to understand, this is Los Angeles. When it rains, everybody goes home and puts their heads under the covers and just stays there until it stops. So uh, that means you're very hardy people and you're just as brave as Orpheus, who, as you know, um, takes his, his lyre and he goes down to the underworld very bravely and faces all the furies. So thank you for coming out and facing the furious rain tonight. I think you're going to be very happy that you did because this is a magnificent production. Um, not because I'm conducting it, it because it's a magnificent production. Uh, it's in uh, collaboration with the Joffrey Ballet. So if you're an opera fan, you're going to get an opera tonight. If you're a ballet fan, you're going to get a ballet tonight. Um, and if you're a, fam a fan of theater, you're going to get a very interesting theatrical conception altogether. And that is very much thanks to um, the man who uh, we're very honored to collaborate with. It's the first time is John Neumeyer, who is an American, but he's been in Hamburg as the head of the ballet there for some, um, I think, close to 40 years. And he's treated and considered like a god uh, in Germany. And after working with him, I, I agree with that. I mean, there's an amazing, an amazing man uh, and an amazing production. The Joffrey Ballet is absolutely stunning. We have a very fabulous cast of three. That's all there is, the characters. And the orchestra and chorus, of course, you all know. And uh, so you're, I, I think you're in for a very good, um, very good evening. I'm going to assume um, generally that everybody knows a little bit about Orpheus. I'll give you, uh, I'll give you only enough information uh, if, uh, to, to, to orientate you toward uh, Orpheus as is, as, as is in this opera because there are many stories about Orpheus. There are many different versions of his story. And um, this is only one of them. And this is actually one of them that you will not find, uh, at least you won't find the, the, the part of this in any Greek myth because it is a, an invention of the 18th century. Um, I wrote my, uh, my long article. Please take a look at it tonight before you sleep or tomorrow night before you sleep. Don't forget you're going to lose an hour of sleep tonight. So uh, get an early start in bed and... and, and <laughs> finish up afterwards. Um, I, I've called it Myth and Recovery, Music and Rebellion, fancy title. Um, but it starts out with two quotes, and I'd like to quote them to you because you just bear them in mind tonight. Because um, oh, The first is from Genesis and Luke. And you say, well, what's that doing here? And it says, but Lot's wife looked back as she lingered behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And then the other one is uh, just a quote from Edith Hamilton's uh, famous book on myths. And then he turned to her, it was too soon, she was still in the cavern, he saw her in the dim light, and he held out his arms to clasp her, but on that instant, she was gone. Now that's, of course, when Orpheus looks back at Eurydice, which he wasn't supposed to do, and she uh, basically dies for a second time. Um, so I put those two together to, to discuss some of what does it mean to look back? And looking back, what happens artistically when one looks back? And I will develop that theme because um, I point out that uh, Europe looked back around 1600 or 1500. It looked back to antiquity, Greek antiquity, Roman antiquity, and it did not turn into a pillar of salt, and we got the Renaissance. Now, Gluck also looked back because he loved Greek mythology and the and classical culture, and he looked back 
and he created not just this wonderful, marvelous opera tonight, but quite a number of others, and he tended to he tended always to go, when he could, to the Greek myths. And uh, he was looking back, but he was also looking forward. And he has been given credit, historically, as being a reformer uh, of opera. Um, and he was a reformer, and I'm also going to point out, hopefully tonight, in a brief time, that um, his reforms, though he spoke of them, and though he started to realize some of them, uh, reform does not uh, succeed overnight in opera as it does not succeed overnight in life and in history and society. Reforms are um, imagined, they can be idealized, they can be presented, um, but it takes a very, very long time for reforms to actually implant themselves in our, uh, in our civilization and in our societies. It's very often, you know, one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, another step back, a step to the side. All of that, because as I hope to point out, is that Gluck's reforms uh, were not, uh, did not start even with Gluck. He did his best, but he didn't even always obey himself. So he put out all these ideas and then he did his best. Why is that? Because um, opera has always, uh, the opera as conceived by composers, uh, poets, librettists, uh, intellectuals, if that, that subcategory uh, exists in that, um, in dialectic with singers, uh, not all of whom are unintellectual, but some of whom are and were in history, and the public's taste. So you've got this dialectic, big ideas about how to f uh, improve and idealize this form and a public and singers who may have other ideas. So that's all what, that's a lot of what you'll find um, in, the, in the article. Now, um, uh, very briefly, uh, Orpheus is a character from Greek mythology who is particularly loved by musicians and artists because he, for us, is a sort of, um, he's a mortal, but he's almost a god in, because he represents actually what we, all, uh, what we all strive to do, which is to use his instrument, uh, which in his case was his voice, his poetic capacities, and his uh, lyre or whatever stringed instrument he plucked. And he was able to move not just people, he was able to move animals, even inanimate objects. At least that's the way the myth goes. And he had this wonderful, uh, extraordinary ability, which he used. And he was, he was beloved in his, uh, apparently in his own time. And he is still beloved by, uh, by artists and composers and poets and just plain old opera fans and uh, symphonists and, com and just about everybody. Orpheus is about as popular as um, uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Nobody really, uh, you know, you don't have to be a, a believer in Catholicism or, or a, 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 any kind of Christianity to love St. Francis. Why? Because St. Francis, he's actually far more popular, I am told, than almost any other uh, in religious individual uh, from the Western, um, from the West, because he spoke to something universal. He could speak to animals. His, his feelings of love and generosity were so great that he could do things that nobody else could do. That's what Orpheus was on. Now, Orpheus was a human being also. We're going to see him in his human element, and we're going to see him in his mythical element. Uh, he, was, he was born in a place called Thrace, 
Um, his mother was a muse, Calliope. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. One day I talked about the birds here. If you, anybody see the birds when we did it? By, by, I thought it was by Aristophanes. And then uh, the mother of one of our orchestra musicians says, my mother has something to tell you. Her, her mother was Greek. She says, his name was Aristophanes. So please forgive me uh, to any of you who speak Greek out there. Uh, I don't know how to say Calliope perfectly, but that is it. And Apollo. Uh, well, maybe Apollo. He's had various fathers. Give, he's been given credit of having various fathers. We, we really don't know. And he um, marries or tries to marry a beautiful young woman named, um, uh, we're going to call her uh, Eurydice in English, Eurydice in Italian, uh, Eurydice in French. And um, as many of the stories go on the wedding day or anyway, he, she is, she dies. And so she dies and goes into the underworld. And it's the story of his going to, to, to save her, to go and get her and to bring her out. Now, um, there is a lot of the Orpheus story that precedes that story. And in fact, maybe that story was added on to a pre-existing myth. And there's a lot that goes on after the Eurydice story is finished, in fact, and it, and it includes what happened to Orpheus at the end of his life, because uh, he does go down to the underworld, and there's a deal made uh, with the gods. You can bring her out, but you may not look at her. Do not turn back and look at her until you are out and back on the surface of the earth. Now, this is like, you know, Adam and Eve and Lot and Lot's wife and all that. God says, don't do that. And of course, you do it, right? It's like four-year-olds. You eat, tell, don't do that. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to do that. So that's the story of humanity. So Adam and Eve picked the apple, and Lot's wife looked back. And, uh, and Orpheus looked back, and he lost Eurydice for, for a second time. And um, it, in, the, in the myth, he doesn't get her back again. And what happens eventually is that he forswears uh, love with women. Um, he uh, is used as a prototype for uh, a man who consciously chose to only share his love with men because he did not want another woman. Well, m women all over the place were in love with him, and so were men. And so there were one bunch of women called Maynades, and I don't know how to pronounce it properly either, uh, but they were furies, and they were furious with him when he would not return their love. And so what did they do? They tore him to bits. They tore him, and that's the end of poor, poor Orpheus in the myth. And um, in fact, uh, his head was chopped off, and it, uh, and you know, it went down the river and showed up in a place. And you know, it's full of all those details. You're not going to see any of that tonight, <laughs> because Gluck and almost every other composer who dealt with this myth was really only interested in telling the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, because that's a love story. So you're going to see the, the curtain is going to rise at the moment of, or just after the death of Eurydice, and we are going to see for the entire first act um, Orpheus lamenting about that. And the only thing that's really going to happen is that a, a god, or a re no, I should say a representative of the god is Amor, that's love, obviously, and Amor is going to come and give him a little lesson, and, he's, and, and he, she, it's a he in this production, is going to say, uh, you can go to the uh, go to the underworld and you can try to save her, but just don't look backwards. That's Act One. You know, somebody once said the story of Tristan and Isolde is really very easy to explain. In Act One, uh, uh, two women are sitting. A man comes in, and that's Act One. And then Act Two, um, there, there's there are two women sitting. A man comes in. 
the, the man and the woman stand up, then sit down, and, that's, and then a man comes in. That's act two. And then in thir third, the third act is that two men are sitting, one is lying, dying, that, and a woman comes in, and he dies, and she dies. That's the whole story of Tristan and Isolde. It takes five hours, but that's the whole story. Now, this is a much shorter opera, but the first act, basically, you, um, Orpheus laments, Amor comes in and says, do this, don't do that. The second act, which is we're playing them together, Orpheus goes to the underworld and he confronts, um, uh, confronts the guardians of the underworld. Cerebus is a dog with several, he well, several heads, and he barks, and you're going to be able to hear his bark in the orchestra. And he's going, what is, what is he going to do, Orpheus? He's going to use his art, his singing, his plaintive expression to wear down the resolve of these monsters who are protecting the underworld, the Furies. And in this, he is a predecessor of uh, another tenor, we know it's Tamino in the Magic Flute, who is going to be able to do the same thing with his flute. And he too, Tamino and Pamina, are going to have a test very similar. Tamino's going to be told, do not talk to Pamina, and he doesn't. And because he doesn't, he gets rewarded with a political award. He becomes the leader of the community, and he gets to marry Pamina. Orpheus wasn't so strong, and he wasn't able to do that. So we admire Tamino. Do we not admire Orpheus? Well, well, no. Some people criticized Tamino and said, ah, he's a little cold and calculating. Orpheus, however, was so full of deep love and so deeply expressive and so deeply feeling that he couldn't help himself. So we really love Orpheus all the more for that. So you take your pick. That's what happens in Act 2. He gets into the underworld, and you're going to see the first part of that is full of fire uh, it's full of furies, um, and they are going to protect. And finally, he's wearing them down, and then he goes in, and what does he find? He finds the, the shadows, that's the souls, um, of all those wonderful people who are in the Elysian fields. And it's all a very pastoral scene, which was the concept of, um, of, the, of uh, the afterworld for the Greeks. And one, by the way, that was deeply loved by the Enlightenment. You've seen so much art before the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, but throughout the Enlightenment, to envision... Um, a, a better world for ourselves as a pastoral bliss. And so the second, entire second half of Act Two is pastoral bliss. So, uh, when you, so all it is is a man comes, stands, sings, and a woman comes out, and that's Eurydice. And that's what happens, all right? That's Act Two. Then you get your, have your intermission. When you come back to Act Three, we get to the crux of the drama between Orpheus and Eurydice, because he is leading her out of the underworld, and this is now, now they become two human beings. And she, of course, is upset because he will not look at her and he will not talk. Now, I've been married for a long time, and I know. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> look, don't talk, but listen. <laughs> and respond when, when spoken to. So, he doesn't do that, of course. We know why. She doesn't. He is not allowed to explain that to her, and so he loses her again. That's Act 3, but it's not full of Act 3, because in this story, something happens that happens in none of the original myths. Amor comes back. We go to the temple of Amor and say, because you were such a good guy, we're actually going to bring her back to you, and you're restored, and you're going to live happily every year after. The chorus comes out. They sing. Everybody's happy, and the story ends happily. Are you glad? 
Now, did Gluck, was Gluck the only one to do that? No. In fact, the oldest opera we know of, we're going to define opera as something that started in Florence in 1600, um, uh, was called uh, Euridici. It was the first opera. It is lost. We do not have it, but we know it was written. And three years later, another opera was written on Euridice, Euridice in Italian, and that exists. And then the third opera, within seven years, was written called Orfeo, and that was written by Claudio Monteverdi, and that is a masterpiece, and that is the oldest opera that is still and regularly played today. That is 1607. Now, we're going to get into the next century. This is going to be 1762, so that's over 150 years later, and the development of opera, of course, has been very interesting. But it all started with Orpheus, and uh, I think there were some 40 operas written on the subject of Orpheus um, between uh, the first three operas in Florence and our Orpheus, which is in the middle. And there are at least 25 that have been written since then, and I know of at least one that's coming up. There's another one. So this myth is inexhaustible, but most of it concentrates on Orpheus and Eurydice. So um, now you've got the story. Um, the important thing is the arbitrary command, which is, a, which is part of the scenery in mythical and biblical stories, because God or the gods say, you must do this, you may not do that, and then it's up to the individual to obey or not. And remember, one, man, one person's myth is another person's religion and vice versa. So there is no clear distinction in the mentality coming from these various sources. Now, if you like that subject, um, Joseph Campbell is a great person to read because, of course, comparative myths um, is, is a great thing to, to read. Now, the, uh, one of the, um, I, I mentioned that Gluck was a reformer. He made his reforms together with his poet, his librettist, who was a man named Calzabigi. It's Italian, obviously. Gluck was born in what is now Bavaria. Um, they got together. They wrote in Italian, of course, uh, because all operas were in Italian because they were Italian operas. Um, that has no bearing on the fact that you're going to hear this opera in French tonight. I'll explain that in a minute. Now, together, Calzabigi and um, Orpheus set out um, a bunch of principles, and um, you can actually read them. Uh, if I just tell you where to look on the, uh, because uh, the time doesn't permit, I think, for me to read it tonight. But there's a man named Charles Burney, who was a musician, composer, who wrote history, who traveled. He was British, and he traveled around Europe, and he wrote a history of everything he saw, including he met Gluck, and he wrote, he, uh, he translated into English the preface to another opera by Gluck and Calzabigi, where they explain what are the reforms. And I'm going to try to quickly explain to them, explain those to you. Um, the chorus acts like a Greek chorus. It's in the first act, it's all the other people who are at least sympathizing with, uh, with Orpheus as he weeps. In the second act, they are first the monsters, furies, uh, the three-headed dog, um, they represent all of that, and then later on, when we get into the Elysian fields, they are the happy spirits. And, of course, they have to come back for the end of the opera as the people, uh, or peasants, or, uh, oh, shepherds and shepherdresses, and nymphs, and they all come back and they celebrate love and, they, and the happy, loving couple. Um, the, the Furies are going to protect the underworld. They are represented by the chorus and also by the dancers. Now, what happened to the original Orfeo, 
Ed Erudice, which is the Italian version written for Vienna in 1762. Uh, it was sung by a castrato. Um, if you don't know what a castrato is, go and look it up. I'm not going to be the one to tell you. Uh, but it is a grown man who is still has the voice of a young boy. How he got that way is up to you to find out. Uh, and it was very popular and very uh, in the opera, not just the opera, because there were many castrati, that's the plural of castrato, um, who sang in church, and that's what, that's, it was a business, and families actually gave up their sons to the church for this horrible practice because they knew that they would get a job and they would be settled for life. It was a big deal at the time to know that you would actually make a living. And so the choirs um, in the Vatican and churches were sung by castrati, by children, uh, by, by adults with children's voices. There were no women singing in churches. So the castrato is a staple in Italian life, and it's a staple in uh, Italian opera as it moves northward, as it has for Vienna. So he had a famous castrato named Ranieri, um, who was an a low castrato. There are some voices that are a little higher, and so he was an alto castrato, and he and he wrote the opera for him. Um, and then he did a second version in Parma, and he had a soprano castrato, which was even higher. So he started to revise it, but the big revision came twelve years later for Paris because he got an opportunity. He was invited to Paris by none, none other than Marie Antoinette, the queen, yes, the queen. And she was his student. And in fact, her mother, who was Austrian, of course, um, saw Orfe Orfeo in Vienna. So she invites him, he comes to Paris, um, he starts to uh, write music for the French, and of course, he now is going to rewrite Orfeos. But guess who don't like the castrati? The French. The French do not, that's not to their taste. So, they're not going to, ha they have to, he has to rewrite the opera, but they do have something called the haute uh, tenor. That's not like haute cuisine, but a little bit separately. Very, very high tenor. And so he has to write it for high tenor, and he rewrites all the keys, and they're very high now. But it, it's still a man, okay? Now, um, he, in addition, he revises the opera. It, of course, translated into French. And he vastly expands the role of the ballet and the dancers. Why? Because that was what was essential for the French public, also the French aristocracy. Remember that the first orchestra in France was Jean-Baptiste Lully's orchestra, which played for the ballet. And you know, he pounded the, with his great big stick called the baton, which became the word baton. And he finally, he hit himself, he hit his toe, had got infected, um, and he died of gangrene. Uh, uh, every orchestra musician somewhere or other loves that story. <laughs> the conductor who is, who is hoisted by his own petard, his own baton. That orchestra was the first orchestra in France, and it has it indirectly and uh, actually it's a direct line to the modern orchestra, the orchestra of the Opera of Paris, which, of which I used to be principal conductor. So, Orchestra becomes more important, and the orchestra part becomes more developed. You're getting a, lots of new ballet, a lots of new orchestra music, and you have French and a tenor. And that become, that's what you're going to hear tonight, by the way. Now, that wasn't the end of it. You had the choice of a countertenor now or a tenor, but midway, a little more than midway in the 19th century, the biggest fans of Gluck were two famous men, probably the two greatest, uh, 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 two greatest, inventive geniuses of music 
in the 19th century, Richard Wagner and Hector Berlioz. They both, uh, Wagner admired Gluck and he admired the reforms and Berlioz simply admired everything he ever did. And so there's a famous mezzo-soprano and she wants to sing Orpheus or Orfeo. So he rewrites it for a mezzo-soprano and does a lot of other things. So there's a Gluck version written in 1859, which isn't performed very much. But the interesting thing is that, that, that Orpheus becoming a mezzo-soprano established itself and has remained to this very day. There are more performances with a mezzo-soprano than any other version. In fact, when I uh, f you know, first studied this opera, it was almost de rigueur, except for the fact that in the, in the 20th century there were baritones who wanted to sing it. And one of those baritones was one of the great singers of his, of his day and my youth was Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau. And the first time I heard Orpheus live, I was 17 years old, and I heard a performance at Carnegie Hall sung by Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau as Orpheus, Elisabeth Schwarzkopf as Eurydice, and Lucia Pop as Amor. That was a pretty good beginning. And so I fell in love with the opera and have loved it ever since. Um, but you now have a, a four different possibilities. There are no more castrati, thank God, but there are countertenors. And so countertenors sing it, high tenors sing it, mezzo-sopranos sing it, and yes, even baritones sing this role. So um, you, have all of those, you have all of those choices. Now, um, in, uh, let me tell you something about the reforms, if I can quickly uh, say what they are. They're all about making substance content more important than form. Now, the um, uh, Gluck and Calcibigi uh, protested against the, um, uh, the stupidity of the happy ending. Nevertheless, they wrote a happy ending for Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, they, uh, Gluck didn't like overtures that did not set the mood for the first scene of the opera. What did he write? An overture, wonderful overture, that doesn't set the mood for the first act. So uh, it's one thing is, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, Gluck and Calcivici also compromised with their, own, with their own thoughts, but they put those thoughts into the universe. Um, they did succeed in removing what is called the recitativo secco. That's the recitative that is played by a harpsichord. Now, did they banish the, the, that forever? No, because composers went right on, including Mozart, all the way through the time of Rossini. But they said, no, cembalo sounds sound stupid, we're not going to use it. All of the recitatives, those are the, the, the parts that are sort of sung and spoken at the same time, they're going to be accompanied by the... Um, by the um so I want to show you how this all came to be. This is Monteverdi, where the opera was, you basically had a little music, and then you had a recitative. And the recitative was very, very simple. That's how opera started. And when we were finished with that, we'd get another little musical, a little musical. That's a happy ending, isn't it? That's Monteverdi's happy ending. Now, in the ensuing, uh, in the ensuing uh, hundred years, the aria became the big deal. That became the, the dollar of opera. In other words, it was the basic coin of opera, and it developed opera greatly. Now, it still had recitative uh, within a harpsichord. Here's a Handel opera. You can hear the harpsichord, right, or the cembalo. 
Now, you're not going to hear that tonight because Gluck and Katsubichi got rid of it. Now, this is the so-called Da Capo Opera. This is Hendel still, right? Now, what is the Da Capo means? Go back to the beginning. You get an, uh, an aria that has a part, of one part. It has a contrasting part. And then you go back to the first part, but you vary it. It's usually fast, slow, fast, but it can be slow, fast, slow. Uh, but the important part is the variation in the second part, and the text is the same in the first and the third parts. That's why we call it A, B, A, or da capo, which means when you finish with the B part, go back to A. All right? Sounds like a pretty good idea. And it was used all the way as it developed through the end of the 17th century, all the way through the 18th century, and only starts to die out at the end of the 1700s. So here's A, here's B, which is slow and sad. And then you get what? A, again, varied. Gluck and Katsubichi hated it. Why did they hate it? Because they said it stops the dramatic flow. They want everything to the, the music to uh, to go forward, consistent with whatever the drama is, which means it's always going to be different. They also hated one other thing. It's called a cadenza. Now, you will know cadenzas not just from arias but from concertos. The orchestra comes to a stop, and the singer gets to do whatever he or she wants. It's lovely to listen to, but Gluck and Katsubichi felt it was undramatic. And so out it goes. You will not hear any cadenzas except one. Now, why are you going to hear one? Because there's an aria in this that was taken from another opera and put into this because the, uh, because the tenor wanted a brilliant piece at the end of Act One. So you're going to see another compromise with their own, with their own principles. Okay, now... This is how they got around it. When it seemed the time for an ABA structure, they're going to vary it. This is Eurydice, plaintively angry and hurt that she's being ignored by Orpheus. So we get a contrasting middle part, but it's not going to be what you expect. Instead, it's going to be a duet. That's a new idea. That's a reform, because Orpheus has to have something to say. Now, they can't talk to each other, so they both talk to themselves or to the gods. And when that's done, we get the part A again. But not really any variations. It's the same feeling, and it's perfectly, um, it's perfectly logical. Now we start with an overture. Very lively, very short, and you'll like it. Now, but that was against their principles because it really doesn't sound about what you're going to hear in the first act. Now, there was something called um, the, the quarrel of the comic operas, the querelle de, de Buffon, that had, had ripped apart society in France, or society who went to the opera. It was ba basically the French against the Italians, and it had all taken place 10 years before 
Gluck got there. But when he got there, it revived because there was a guy named Piccini, not Puccini, but Piccini, and all of the, those who liked Italian opera and castrados got behind him, and those who all liked French and new ideas, and well, that, they got behind Gluck. Benjamin Franklin was there, and he said, what a wonderful place. The government must be so nice that people have nothing better to do than to argue about foreign music. Now, Today, we also have arguments in the Baroque world because about 40 years ago, there was a revolution in the Baroque world and the idea that we could be playing on uh, old instruments with old instrument practice, we could be lowering the pitch, and we could t revisit Baroque music completely. Well, today, we have, 40 years later, um, many of those people um, who are Baroque specialists, um, and they're fighting with each other about what? About all sorts of details, and that's very healthy and that's very wonderful. And then there are other people who actually reject the whole premise of what the antique, in, uh, antique instruments is all about. Um, I admire many of those musicians who make wonderful music, but I am a person who does not subscribe to the basic premise of what they're saying. So there are still quarrels, and let me give you an example. I've been playing you... That's the overture as we as conducted by Riccardo Muti, who is, uh, I'm in his camp. Now, this is a Baroque specialist. They like fast tempi. And very percussive effect. Now, is that to say one is right and one is wrong? No, it is to say it is a question of taste, and your taste is as good as anybody else's taste. So if you prefer one approach, you, are, you may have it. And if you prefer another, you may have that. If you prefer hearing a countertenor, there's a countertenor somewhere for you. If you prefer hearing a mezzo-soprano, you can find a mezzo-soprano. And that is actually a, a, a monument to the wonderful, flexible art that is opera. Now, when, when the curtain goes up, the chorus is helping Orpheus lament. Stunningly beautiful music in C minor. None of this was lost on Mozart. And you can hear the presaging the C minor mass, for instance. Now, uh, we have... And against this background, we will hear, like a mantra, for the first time, Orpheus repeating her name. Euridice. That's all he says. Euridice. This chorus is a masterpiece. It sets the deep tone of the opera. Now something interesting happens. We're going to have a three-part aria where we're going to have the same music three times, but it's going to be separated by a recitative where Orpheus says something to the chorus. First he says, please go away, I want to suffer in silence, I want to be alone. And then he sings his aria in major. That's amazing. Why so sad and singing major? Didn't you learn in music school and music appreciation that minor was sad and, and major was happy? Oversimplified perhaps, but there's a certain truth in that. Now, and the reason can only be that we see that Orpheus does something very important that the artist does. He transforms, he or she, transforms their feelings into pure art. And so, he starts in C major. Oh, 
and then he has a recitative again. He laments again, again in minor. And there's an echo from the woods, the oboe backstage. And then he sings again in C major. And then again, he has a recitative. And he says, even higher, Eurydice, Eurydice. And his voice echoes in the oboe backstage. And then he, what does he do? He sings in C major. There it is for a third time. Now, you'll be able to sing that by, the time, by that time because you will have heard it three times. Now, it's very interesting. In the original Viennese, it was also in major. It was in F major because it was a lower voice. Um, but he sings five times in this opera in a major key. The key relationships are different in the French version from the Italian, but the important thing is he sings in major. He's going to sing in major again when he gets to the Elysian Fields. And most of all, when he loses her for the second time, his famous aria, which is called Che farò senza Euridice, is going to be sung in major. Now, this is the second act. That's how we are going to meet the underworld. Magnificent, uh, magnificent music, not lost on Mozart and the Magic Flute and the C minor Mass either. And he's going to confront the Furies with his weapon. The harp is representing his lyre. And the Furies are going to howl at him. This is a recording by Arturo Toscanini, who conducted the opera more than 50 times at the Metropolitan Opera. He loved it, and he recorded it in his last decade, and you can get that on, uh, on you can still buy that record. Now. And then the dancers, the Fury dancers dance. But gradually, that, through the singing of Orpheus and playing, is going to transform them all, just the way the magic bells transform Monocytos' slaves in the magic flute, and the magic flute attracts the animals. It's going to become this. And all of us, you remember uh, Cerebus is the dog with many heads. He stops barking, and you'll hear his barking in the, in, in the orchestra during the chorus. They move ahead. A second group of Furies who dance. But Orpheus gets through when we are in the Elysian Fields. And this is a famous minuet, famous in concert. I love this so much that my, one of my first gigs, I got invited to conduct a chamber orchestra in Boston, just out of school, and I, and I wanted to do all the ballet music and from Orpheus, so I did that. And this very famous flute solo. And I must tell I'm gonna probably put it on, on my Twitter. Uh, while we were rehearsing this, I turned around at a piano rehearsal and I heard a flute playing from behind my, and I turned around and there was our soprano, Lisette Oropesa, playing this solo. She is a flutist.
and brilliant. And uh, Maxim Mironov, who's the who is the Orpheus, also plays the flute. I don't know if you believe in things, but that's pretty interesting, wasn't it? Okay, now, then we get into the Elysian field, and here's Toscanini, reputed to be a very fast conductor. This is the flowing Pacific pastoral scene of the Elysian fields, and here it is in the hands of a modern Baroqueist. You may choose. Now, you remember the recitative with the cembalo. The longest recitative is the entire first scene of Act Three, and it starts like this. Sorry. In minor, they're coming out of this beginning of Act Three, right after intermission, and Orpheus is leading Eurydice out of. And then it is going to be an entire scene, recitative with the orchestra participating. No, no harpsichord. When we get to the famous aria, this is the famous Che farò senza Euridice. What will I do without Euridice? Sung by a countertenor. Here it is, sung by in French by a tenor. That's what you're going to hear tonight. This is Nicolai Guedda. Or you could hear it sung by a mezzo-soprano. This is Anne-Sophie Mutter. Or you can hear, as I did, a baritone Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau. The Italian version ended with a chorus. Everybody's happy. And you're going to hear that. But then you're going to hear an extended ballet because in France it had to end with a ballet, and so it will tonight. And that ballet will celebrate the presence of the Joffrey Ballet, our partners, John Neumeyer, and the first time that the French version of Orphée et d'Eurydice is being done in Los Angeles Opera. It's my 56th opera here, and I'm thrilled to be doing it. Thank you very much for coming, and enjoy yourself.